Uh, I want to continue the series we began last week. We started a new series called Crash. And so we're talking about relationships. We're talking about conflict and how God actually wants to engage and enter into our lives even in that place uh, and actually work to bring about resolution and forward motion in our relationships. And so um, if you were here with us last week, you know we started that series. And here's kind of the why or the reason behind why we've decided to talk about this series. It's because when you look around at our world, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like we have a lot more conflict than we've had in recent times, especially when you look at social media or Facebook and the way people engage around politics, around issues of gender equality or racial equality or immigration or all these different issues. We just have a lot of conflict in our world right now. And it's not just the amount of conflict that's the issue, it's the way we engage with it. It just seems like we don't know how to engage conflict in a positive, productive manner. Have you noticed this as well? This has been an observation you've made as well. And so we said, well, why don't we just take a little bit of time and talk about how do we as the church, how do we engage conflict in our world, in our relationships? How do we do that? If you're anything like me, every single week affords you opportunities to get into some kind of a conflict situation. Every single week, there's some bump in my world, whether it's an email that was read wrongly by somebody or a piece of communication that misses the point. Or maybe it's uh, expectations someone had that, didn't get, that did not get met, and so now they're angry because their expectations didn't get met. Every single week, I have these kinds of situations. And if you're anything like me, when those moments happen, my human reaction, my natural human reaction is to draw back, to step back, to step away from the conversation and to get offended, to get defensive, you know, to begin to just figure out how I can sort of posture and, and move myself into position to win the conflict. And that's just kind of a human reaction. We all do that. And so what we're talking about here is um, why does that happen? Why is that our natural reaction? And often the reason is because we are assuming some kind of intent behind the person's words. Often the, the reason why we step back and draw back from conflict is because we, there's some perceived intent we think we understand behind it. Well, they must have said that because they think this about me, or they must be actually trying to do this. And so we perceive some intent and we step back away from the conflict. And so often we're more offended by the intent of people's words than the actual content of their words. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Content can sting, but intent can wound. You think about interpersonal relationships and the way they work, content, what someone says to us, it can sting, but oftentimes it's the intent that we perceive behind why they said what they said. That's what actually wounds us deeply. That's what actually we carry with us and leaves the deepest scars in our lives. And so last week, David started out this series and what he said was, uh, conflict is not bad, but being bad at conflict is bad. Right? And that's kind of the thing. Oftentimes, conflict is actually, if it's handled well, is a stepping stone to, to better things in our lives, to more success in our relationships. But being bad at conflict really sets us back. And so what David said last week is he said, uh, the challenge was identify, remember this, identify areas of collision in your lives, and then return to the scene of the crash. And then the third thing was begin to repair the damage. Identify conflict areas in your life, return to the scene of the crash, and begin to repair the damage. And so some of you have been doing that this week. You've been returning to the scene of the crash, and you've been asking the question, well, how do I begin to repair the damage? So that's what I want to talk about this morning. How do you begin 
to engage a conversation with somebody that maybe you've stepped away from because of some conflict and you want to return to the scene of the crash and begin to repair the damage. How do you do that? How do you go about that? And so what we're doing this whole month is we're looking at the book uh, of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul, the writer Paul in the Bible in the New Testament, writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And let me tell you, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are incredible. There's not a single command at all in, all in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul, writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he doesn't tell them to do a single thing. It's three chapters of him telling them who they are. He's just taking the gospel and he's expounding on it. And he's saying, because of Jesus, because of his death and his resurrection, here's who you are now. So in chapter one, he says, you've been adopted into God's families. As you're, you're no longer orphans. You're, you're adopted. You're sons, your daughters, your children of God, and you belong in his family. That's who you are. In chapter 2, he goes on, he says, you used to be dead in your sins and in your transgressions, but God, because of his great mercy and his great love for us, he made you alive again in Christ. So you're no longer dead. It's, been, it's by grace you've been saved because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, and you are in that. And you, If you are in Christ, you are made alive again. It's just again and again, here's who you are, here's who you are. You're God's workmanship, he says later on. And then you get to chapter 4. And the very first word of chapter 4, Paul says, therefore, and whenever you find the word therefore in the Bible, you need to go back and read what was before it so you know why it's therefore. And he says, so it's, it's like no command, no command, no command. And then in chapter 4, he says, therefore, and then it's just command, 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 command. Do this, don't do that. This is how you should live now that you know who you are in Christ. And I've heard tons of sermons on the first three chapters of Ephesians. I've given tons of sermons. I've hardly ever heard uh, sermons on, the, on Ephesians chapter 4. Because it gets to the point where we start to go, okay, now this is what I actually have to live out. This is how we're called to live as the church since we've been transformed by Christ. And frankly, we need it desperately. We need Paul's words desperately in our relationships and in our world right now. So this is what he says. Here's how you begin to live this out. Therefore, he says... In, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. I've just been spending all this time telling you who you are. Lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now, I want you to really pay attention to these words. Go ahead to the next one there. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Now, what's interesting is as we read those words, we know what those first words mean. We, we know what it means to be humble and to be gentle. We, we understand that. We understand what it means to be patient. But what does this phrase right here mean? Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. What does that even mean? What's interesting is the, the Greek word here for making allowance is the Greek word anecho. You got to like really pronounce that when you say it, anecho. And anecho means to sustain, to bear, or to endure. In fact, some translations of this verse in your, in your Bible, if you have a different translation, it actually says, bear with one another, bear with each other's faults because of your love. So it's this word that means to sustain, to bear. In other words, it's saying when you find yourself in the midst of, of some kind of conflict, be humble, be patient, be gentle, but it says don't step back 
from the conversation. Don't step away, which is our human tendency. It's saying to sustain with the conversation. Bear with the other person. Actually press in, draw in. And what you're trying to do when you do this is you're trying to draw the other person out. You're trying to draw out the intent underneath their words. Remember, content can sting, but intent can wound us. And so what you're doing when you find yourself in conflict, instead of stepping back, you're bearing with, you're stepping forward, you're sustaining with, you're staying in the conversation, you're pressing in, and you're beginning to draw them out and trying to get to what's underneath, what's the intent underneath them. The greatest human need that we have is to be understood. Human beings, we are wired with this deep need, all of us, to be seen, to be understood by another human being and know that we haven't been just sort of overlooked or forgotten. And because of that, this, that's what makes this so powerful and what makes it such a powerful thing when we actually begin to practice it, where we step in and we begin to try to understand and draw the other person out so their intent can kind of come to the surface. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says the purposes, or you could say the intent of a person's heart, are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. The person who has insight is able to engage that conversation at the scene of the crash when they return and draw the other person out. And so how do you do that? It's one thing to talk about that. So Paul says, sustain, stay with, make allowance, draw near the other person, stay in the conversation, begin to draw them out. So how do you do that? What I want to do right now is I want to give you one principle today. This is one principle of how to actually live that out, how to live out what Paul is saying. And it's a very practical, you can actually go home and put this principle into uh, work today in your marriage when you have that fight with your spouse at home after church. I mean, you can literally put it into effect today and it will make an incredible difference. If you can actually practice this, it will revolutionize your relationships. It'll open the other person up in the conversation and it'll make a way for resolution to happen. Okay, so here's the principle uh, of how to actually live this out. The principle is ask before advocate. Just invite you to write that down. Ask before advocate. It's just the, the way I would phrase it. But what does that mean? Uh, oftentimes, uh, when we get into a, an argument or a piece of conflict with somebody who we see as our adversary, even if it's our spouse or our kids, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's somebody we encounter in our job and we see them as an adversary, uh, initially, when, as soon as conflict happens, our natural tendency is to begin to advocate for our position first. Isn't that true? That's what we do. We immediately go into, I'm going to advocate for my position, I'm going to advocate for what I want, for what I think first. And the reason we do this is because the deepest need of any human being is to be understood. We want the other person to understand. Here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I want. And so we begin to advocate. But what happens when we do that is it often just invites the other person to advocate and then you have uh, conflict. And so what we're going to do when, when conflict comes up, instead of advocating for our position first, what we're going to do is we're going to begin to actually try to voice the other person's perspective back to them. And that's going to require us to ask questions. It's going to require us to, to dive into their world and to try to see things from their perspective and actually say back to them, it seems like you think this. It seems like you feel this way about this. Am I hearing you correctly? And, and that's what we're going to do before we begin to advocate for our perspective and what it is that we want. So asking before advocate means we're going to discipline ourselves to ask questions before we make statements. 
Before you make any statements, you just begin to ask questions and you begin to draw the other person out and make sure you actually understand where they're coming from. So I want to show you a video. It's about a five-minute video of a story of a person who lives this out and who has begun to live this out in their life. Uh, Our staff first saw this video at a conference that we were at together. It's a video about a judge in Columbus named Judge Paul Herbert. And um, this judge has won several different awards for his work and what he's done, but he's basically taken this idea of ask before advocate, and, he's, and he began to see the adversary, the people who would come into his courtroom, he began to see them differently. He began to actually allow God to work in his life so that he began to engage them in a different way. Um, and, it, and it goes along, he began to make allowance for uh, these people's faults because of his great love. And it's amazing how what God has done, the way he's revolutionized his career, as well as the lives of these other people who have gone through this. Um, So it's a pretty intense video, but five, five minutes long, take a look at this. I was a prostitute. It wasn't just feeling trapped, I was trapped. Girls get raped out there, beat up, held hostage. Overnight, you're owned by somebody. Then four years was hell. I was in this hotel for like two years straight. I mean, like, they would bring you your food, they would give you your drinks, they would give you your your drugs. You gotta sleep with who they tell you to. You pray and wish that you could be done with this lifestyle. When we would sit there and talk about, hey, you know, how are we gonna get out of this? Well, you can call the police. Well, you got a thing. We're doing dates with police officers, with detectives. We're doing dates with them. I never felt safe. I never thought I could turn to them for nothing. I've had the real type of law supposed to help you and then the type of law that's used you. So it was hard to trust him. You know, an officer rolls up on you, you don't know what's gonna happen. You don't know if he's gonna force you to do something or if he's there to actually help you. It's really traumatic, like it's horrible. I wouldn't wish that lifestyle on nobody, nobody. The police were bringing me search warrants on human trafficking cases. And the prosecutor started showing me all the pictures and bringing the victims up with the bright red rings around their neck from fresh choking, hair pulled out, fresh burn marks where the guy had burned a cigarette in their skin just to torture them. And as this was going on, the sheriff brought the next defendant out on the wall and I looked over and that's when I saw a woman who looked just like one of these victims. She had that same aura about her. And so I looked down at the file and saw a prostitute. And I thought, we ought to start looking at the person that we're arresting for prostitution more like she's a victim of human trafficking. Just prior to this event, I was trying to teach my daughters the book, The Purpose Driven Life. So my one little daughter, she said, hey dad, you're doing really good teaching us about this purpose in life, but what's your purpose in life? And I was like, oh man, it just got me right there. So that night I just went upstairs and said a quick prayer. I said, you know, I know I've got this really interesting job. So I said, if there's any way you could show me how to be significant in my work, I'd appreciate that. Then things started to happen very rapidly. I started researching and I found some amazing truths that totally blew my mind away. 1,500 women charged with prostitution a year coming through Columbus. Women who are involved in prostitution reoffend 80% of the time. So that's the revolving door syndrome. The average age of the first sexual abuse is eight years old. 
96% of them are runaways before they become involved in prostitution. 62% of all women enter prostitution before they're 18 years old. I couldn't believe that people were taking advantage of our women and girls and other vulnerable people in Columbus in such a horrible way. So we started a court in 2009 to allow them to exit this deadly and lifestyle. Okay, so Ashley, way to go. Um, this is Changing Actions to Change Habits, certified. So Ashley Monday has graduated the phase two of the catch program on May 10th. CATCH stands for Changing Actions to Change Habits because we ask women to change everything about their lives. CATCH Court is a two-year intensive probation. They have individual counseling as well as group sessions. That's kind of hard for me. Okay, I know how you feel because you know I came from Mary. I spent most of my time surrounded by other women, even though I had my own home. Like, it's like a legit sisterhood community. It's amazing. These women have multiple complex trauma. That's at the core of their issue. And when you know how to engage them with trauma-informed approach, they will respond. So instead of saying, what's wrong with you, I learned to say, I wonder what happened to you. All right, Tina. Hi, how many days do you have? 208. Wow. All right, so where are you at with that GED? I'm going to fractions. Oh my God. The statistics that we're now able to share that if you spend six months or more in the program, 62% of these women never get arrested again. And if you graduate from the program, it's a high 90 percentile, never get arrested again. I think you can say it saves money, it saves police time, it saves court time. But for me, that's not where I consider the success. When I see multi-generational healing from parents to children and the women getting their children back and how important that is to those children, uh, that's what makes it worth it to me. If it wasn't for Cat's Court, I would be back out on the street. It saved my life. They gave me my life. They gave me a second chance. I have a home that I can actually call mine. I have a one-year-old daughter. I got custody of my 14-year-old twins back. My grandbabies and my kids. To be a part of their lives again, it's a wonderful. I could be a good example for my kids. And my daughter would never see me the way my sons did. I may not have been a good mom, but I'm one heck of a grandma. This has been the best thing that's happened in my career and maybe my life. And now I can look my daughter in the eye and say, hey, now we know what dad's purpose was, don't we? Yeah. I love the line in there where Judge Paul Herbert says, Instead of looking at these women and asking the question, what's wrong with you? I learned to start asking a different question. What happened to you? That's a very different question, isn't it? What, what happened to you? 
And, and, and as he began to bear with them and make allowances for their faults because of his love, because of his love for God first and then for other people, uh, it, it began to change the, the nature of the game. He began to understand and began to see a different way he could impact. I mean, this, this is powerful not just for resolving conflict in your own interpersonal relationships, but it very well might be the path to how you discover your purpose. The way that God wired you to engage, the way he unlocks your heart of compassion for a group of people in our world. But we have to decide we're going to stop advocating for our own position and we're actually going to begin to ask and begin to seek to understand where someone else is coming from before we begin to make judgments. So this is such a powerful concept, ask before advocate. So here's the question, why don't we see more of it in our world? If it works, if it impacts relationships, if it helps people step into their purpose for life, why don't we see it very often? Why doesn't it happen? And the answer to that is very simple, because we tend to get angry, right? When we encounter conflict in our lives, when we encounter a bump or someone who we view as an adversary, we immediately step back from them and we begin to get angry and we begin to get defensive and we begin to advocate for our own position first. And that's why Paul, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, he brings up anger two different times throughout the, the, uh, the chapter because he understands this is the barrier. We end up getting angry and just letting our anger take over. In uh, Ephesians 4 verse 26, he says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Now, be really clear there, anger is not a sin. Anger is just a human emotion. I get angry, you get angry, everybody gets angry, but what he's saying is don't sin by letting your anger get control over you. Some translations say, in your anger, do not sin. It's possible for us to let our anger get complete control over us, over our behavior and our decisions. Then he says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. My wife Carrie and I have tried as best as we can to live out that principle, that idea of don't let the sun go down. Like if there's, there's something between us, a conflict, don't, keep short accounts, resolve it that night before you go to, go to bed. Don't let the sun go down when you're angry. Um, so this is how Paul speaks about anger. Go ahead to the next one. He closes out the whole chapter of Ephesians 4. It's like he really just wants to drive it home and hammer it. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And with that last sentence, he wraps up the chapter by pointing us right back to Christ and he says, what we're actually doing here is we're forgiving one another out of the forgiveness that we've received from Christ, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. That's how we're called to forgive one another. So that, that's the power of what happens when we're able in the moment when, when we encounter conflict to actually put anger on a shelf. It's a decision we make to put anger on the shelf and say, I'm going to discipline myself to ask questions before I make any statements, before I advocate, and just make sure I understand where the other person is coming from. Because the greatest human need we have is to be understood, is to actually be heard and actually be understood. Anger gives us this false impression that we're in control. It makes us feel, in the moment when you're angry, you feel like you're powerful, right? Like you're getting control over the other person. You're getting control over the, uh, the situation. But that's really not the way you look to other people when you're angry. 
I remember my dad is terrible with technology. He's always been terrible with technology. And I have this memory of my brother and I sitting in our living room in the house we grew up in, and we're watching TV. And my dad's in the other room. He's trying to get our attention, and we're just ignoring him. We're watching TV. This sounds familiar, right? You, you, you Parents, you've understood this. And so my dad gets really angry because we're ignoring him from the other room, and he comes marching in. And I'll never forget, he walks in the room. He goes, that's it. And he walks over to the TV, and he extends his finger because he's angry. He's going to turn off the TV, and he pushes a button on the TV, but instead of hitting the power button, the, he hits the volume button, and the volume of our program goes up even louder, and he takes a step back, and now he's even more angry, so he hits another button, and the menu bar pops up on the screen, and he's just sitting there hitting button after button, just cursing and swearing angry, and what's happening behind him in this moment? My brother and I are just dying laughing, right? We're just cracking up like, oh my gosh, this is the fun. We're doing it quietly, uh, but, but we're laughing at, at him and what he's doing. And that's the way the anger often really is. In the moment, we feel like, man, I'm getting control of this situation. I'm getting control of this person. But in actuality, all we're doing, we never look more out of control to the other person than when we're angry. And in fact, all we really do when we get angry is we give the other person permission to lose control of themselves, just the same way as we're losing, losing control of ourselves. It's this illusion and so Paul says, you've got to learn in the moment, if we can learn to say, I'm going to set my anger on the shelf for a minute, and I'm going to discipline myself to stay in the conversation and to ask instead of to advocate for my own uh, position. Anger is a secondary emotion. It's a, it's a defense mechanism. It's a firewall. And oftentimes what we're doing when we're angry is we're actually protecting the real mo- emotions that are underneath that need to be drawn out. When you encounter someone, who's angry, oftentimes what they're, the real emotions that they're hiding underneath are usually one of three, either hurt, fear, or shame. Those are usually the three that are underneath our anger, hurt, fear, or shame. So when we begin to ask before we advocate, we're, we're beginning to draw that person out and to understand those emotions, what's underneath that. And if you can get to that, you open up the conversation that place of collision, you open that up for healing and for restoration and forgiveness to enter in. And this is what we're called to. Uh, even as I say this, honestly, if I'm completely honest with you, uh, there is a collision that I need to return to in my life. There's a person, it, w- it wasn't anything major, but it's been this collision. And uh, I need to return and I need to practice this whole concept of asking before advocating and just sitting down with this person and working through this. But to be honest with you, I don't want to do it. And the reason I don't want to do it is because it would just be more fun to stay angry. Anybody else, it feels kind of good to stay angry. Are you like that? Okay, I'm the only one. Awesome. Well, okay, thank you uh, for your honesty. I don't feel so lonely up here then. Um, yeah, I just, it feels good to be angry. It feels good to stay angry sometimes. But I know what's going to happen. I know if I make this phone call and I just sit down over a cup of coffee with this person, and I will, especially now that I've said this out loud, I'm going to do it. I know if I begin to just sit down and ask before advocating, I know God is going to bring healing into that situation. He's going to bring perspective for me and understanding, and it's going to be, he's going to bring restoration because he always does that. He's always been faithful to do that. So the application here, if you're uh, taking notes to jot this down, is seeking understanding is not an attitude. It's a practice. Seeking understanding is not this attitude that we kind of take on. It's something we actually have to put into practice. Paul says, always be humble and gentle and patient, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Always. 
It's this idea that we have to actually decide to put this into practice in our lives or else nothing changes. Nothing gets healed. But when we begin to actually put this into practice in our lives, that's when the Holy Spirit begins to move and God begins to work in our lives, work in our relationships, and begins to change our hearts. And the reason this is so powerful, as Paul wrapped it up in that, those last couple sentences, is because this isn't just about, you know, a good way to resolve conflict with a person. What this is really about is it's at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of who God is. It's at the heart of what Jesus did for us. God didn't just stay angry at us because it felt good to punish us for our sins and our mistakes and the ways that we were disobedient. But in the incarnation, God actually entered in to our situation. Jesus came and he lived here as a human being. He stayed in the conversation with us. He drew near to us and he lived a human life. He dealt with all the same things we deal with. He was tempted by the same things we're tempted by. He was broken by the same, same things that break our hearts and, and experience suffering and pain and sorrow. All the same things we experience and understand the human connection. And then he sacrificed his life on our behalf so that we could have life. The writer John says the only reason we know how to love other people is because he first loved us. This is really something we can't practice this unless we've allowed God to forgive us. We've allowed him to love us. And because of the example he set, because of what he did for us, and this is who you are now, Paul says, you live out of that same forgiveness. Live out of that same perspective. You draw in you incarnate yourself into another person's life experiences and allow God to move in that and change your heart. And when you do, that's when real healing happens. Uh, this past um, week when we were in Ethiopia with the team, we did one of the things we did, you heard the team kind of say it, is we went um, to several different home visits. And so people who were, some of the kids who were being sponsored, we'd go uh, to one of the homes of, of the people who were there. And one of the visits we went to uh, was a single mother. She's a widow. Her daughter, Helena, uh, was, is part of our care point, and she was unsponsored until last hour. Somebody sponsored her at the last, um, after the last service. Uh, but we went to her house, and her, we learned um, that her husband had recently died, and not very much longer she's going to follow. And so this little girl is going to be uh, orphaned, and, and they know this. And so uh, the way it worked is this woman didn't know we were going to come to her house that day. She didn't know we were going to visit. And in fact, um, we almost didn't go. It was one of those last minute decisions that we made uh, to go. And, and then things kind of got changed. So we, we ended up kind of almost not making it. But we show up at the house and we had some gifts to give. And when we walk in, um, she immediately welcomes us with her daughter, Helena. And she welcomes us into her home with this dirt floor. And we all sit down. And um, we just begin to talk, and she sits down, and she just begins to thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for, for uh, allowing my daughter to be a part of this care point. And then she says this. She said, I was praying. I've been praying. I was praying today that God would give me a sign, that he hears me, and that he's going to take care of my daughter when I'm gone. And then in her language, she just said, you are the answer to that prayer. You guys showing up today is, is, a, is that sign that I was praying for, that God hears me, that he sees me, that he hasn't forgotten me, and that he's going to take care of my daughter. And in her language, she said, my daughter is your daughter. My, my child is your child. And when she said that, I mean, the Holy Spirit just moved in that place. We were all just weeping. We were all in tears. 
And it's because the deepest need of a human being is to be heard, to be understood. As I'm learning to understand the situation um, that we find ourselves in um, with this care point, I'm learning some things about poverty. And what I'm learning is that poverty really has very little to do with how much money a person has. Uh, poverty is not being seen and not being heard and not being understood. That's what poverty really is. The poorest in our world are unseen. They don't have a voice. And so the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is dignity. Being seen, being heard, being understood. And, and this is what every human being, this is what all of us want to the deepest core of our being. And it's what the gospel offers us. It's what Christ offers us. And so the way that home visit ended is we just had this powerful time where we asked uh, this mother and her daughter to, to stand in the middle of this room and they literally kneeled down like on the ground and we laid hands on them. And in, the mo- in that moment, we were the hands and feet of Christ and we just prayed and we said, God sees you, God hears you, and you are not forgotten. And, and that's the power of this, what it means to actually step in and say, I'm not going to just advocate for my position. I'm not just going to stand right here. I'm going to stay in the conversation. I'm going to press in. I'm going to bear with this other person because of my love for Christ, because of what he's done for me. And as we begin to do that, God begins to move. He begins to unlock the potential that's in the conflict that we find ourselves in. We, we begin to actually see God give us purpose and direction for our lives as we allow him to give us a heart for other people. And this is what we're called to. Those of us who have been rescued by Jesus, we're called to enter into the same journey and do this together. So here's... Uh, the challenge for today. As you return to the scene of the crash, as you begin to engage a repairing conversation, uh, ask before advocate. Ask God to begin to show you what questions even to ask. And I'm telling you, he's going to begin to heal brokenness and work in those relationships. So here's how I'd like to to close. I would love to offer a prayer and then we're going to have a benediction. Um, We're not going to do a closing song because we've had so much going on this morning. Um, But if you'd bow your heads with me for a moment. Lord Jesus, we just come before you right now. And I I can't imagine all the different pockets in this room of broken relationships or hurt or places where there's a crash. Maybe we don't even want to return to it. We just want to stay angry. So Father, right now I pray that you would just bring your Holy Spirit again to bear to those conversations, those situations. And would you just allow us to see ourselves as sons and daughters. That's what we are. We're children who've been adopted. We were dead in our transgressions and our sins, but now we've been made alive because of Jesus. And God, would you just give us the ability to set aside anger and to actually make allowance to be humble and gentle and patient and step into, to stay in the conversation and begin to ask instead of advocate And I pray, Lord, as that happens, even across the different relationships that are represented in this room, would you bring healing, God? Would you bring restoration? And even as we begin to practice this as people, not shouting at each other across Facebook for people who are different than us or that we see as our adversaries, but as we begin to ask the questions uh, and we begin to add, not to advocate for ourselves, but begin to step into other people's shoes, would you bring uh, a heart change for each one of us, God? We just ask this. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Awesome. Would you stand? I'd love to close with a benediction.